Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you. Um, I get to be in your building quite often. I'm uh, part of Jeff's committee uh, for credentials where we examine the new candidates as they come through. Um, and, but it's been a while since I've uh, had the privilege of worshiping with you all, so it's just great to be here. Um, we're going to be continuing your series in the parables this morning in Luke chapter 13, starting verse 18. Luke 13, starting verse 18. And he said, therefore, Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you spoke and that your disciples listened and they wrote it down for us. And here we are. 2,000 years later, hearing your word again. Speak to us now, we pray, Holy Spirit. Transform us. Bit by bit, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. 1986 was the largest year of recruitment for the U.S. Navy. Set the record. You would think, you know, it would be around... World War II, you know, after Pearl Harbor, you would think that would be the time that the most men would enlist in the Navy. It was 1986. You know why? You know what else happened in 1986? Top Gun. Top Gun was in the theaters. We got the sequel last year. You know, it was pretty good. Um, you know, we all watched that and they're like, you know, we don't make them like that anymore, right? When we saw Top Gun 2. Maverick Top Gun. And uh, the Navy set up recruitment booths outside of movie theaters. And it worked. Um, I love that little fact of uh, American military history. Because I love to imagine the disillusionment of those guys. You know, like the first day of training, you know, you saw Top Gun and then you walk in and your superior officer is yelling in your face and the, everything smells and it's just like excruciating uh, physical, emotional, and personal torment uh, inflicted upon you with great precision and discipline. And you're thinking, you know, where's the beach volleyball? Uh, when can I wear my Ray-Bans? Do they issue those? Uh, when do I fly inverted? Is that a thing? Are we allowed to do that? Um, and, you know, I, I like thinking about that because that's often how we feel about life. Trying to have these Top Gun expectations for how things will go. We have these Top Gun expectations in the spiritual world as well, right? We have these expectations either for the church or for our own spiritual lives or for what it's going to look like to be a member of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and like yeast, like leaven. Um, you know, I see students come into William & Mary with Top Gun expectations, you go on the campus tour, and everything's beautiful and great the, the day that you are there. It's a nice spring day, and then you go, and suddenly there's homework to be done, and, think, and you're lonely and alone. 
And it's not this heaven on earth that you were sold. Um, Or we have this idea that we're going to make a difference in the world. It's been a message that's been declining a little bit for young people over the last several years as reality has set in societally, and we know that it's harder to change the world than we thought. There's still this pressure that I see among William Mary students, this idea that they aren't just supposed to be competent or smart or a good person, but that they also are supposed to measure their worth by the impact that they make. And this has crept into the Christian vision of what it means to follow God, that you aren't just to be faithful, you're to make an impact. Or even a few years back, say things like, change the world. And there was this whole slew of books about how if we could just follow Christ effectively, we would change and transform the world. Um, But then, boot camp comes, and life isn't what we expected, right? Maybe we're not making the impact we once thought, or our expectations for our own lives. I thought I would be better at this point. I thought I would have been a holier person, a more faithful person, a wiser person. And I'm still just sort of the same me that I was so many years ago. And this church is the same church it was 10 years ago. There's some changes here and there, but what is the difference? And I look around and start to say, I don't know if this is what I signed up for, like the Navy recruits. Especially that message of making a difference. I want to quote, Anthony Bradley, he's a professor up at the King's College in New York, talking about that message that he saw hurting his students, that they couldn't just follow Jesus but needed to change the world. What do phrases like world changer or make an impact and make a difference even mean? I have no idea. If you send a young adult on a mission to go make a difference, it's like sending them out to sea without a map or navigational equipment. A mission without a map does nothing but cause anxiety and stress. I'm left wondering why the commission to love isn't enough for us to say to these young adults. The greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor. And there is nothing more challenging and life-giving than that mission. Why do we need to tell these young people to go make a difference and change the world? And what Dr. Bradley is getting at is that we set these lofty ideals and In the process, we might miss the simpler, more obvious, yet overlooked principles of Christ and his simple command to love one another, which, to push back on Dr. Bradley a little bit, love one another is also a little bit ambiguous. I want the map for that. (laughs) Well, the God, how do I know when I'm loving well? But nonetheless, his point is well taken. And that's what I think Jesus is getting at here in these two parables when he says, what is the kingdom of God like? It's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven. It's like yeast. And these two things have a lot in common, but I want to look at two things about mustard seed and leaven. Pretty obvious. First, it's small. The kingdom of God is small, and it grows. It's small, and it grows. First, let's look at the smallness of God's kingdom. Small speck. These little, you know, mustard seed, leaven, if, if it was on your kitchen counter, you might not notice it, Right? If a guest came over, they might think, just let's sweep it off the table and move on to start the real business at hand. It's a speck. What's the point? In part, small things matter. Small things matter. 
Not only are they actually physically small, but they're incredibly mundane, spectacularly boring, actually, as an illustration. You know, if I were going to give an illustration to my students, you know, what's the kingdom of God like? If a student says, Ben, what could you compare? To what might you compare the kingdom of God, Ben? I would say, it's like this invisible, magical world that you can be a part of once you were given the information. You can enter into that place, and it's like Hogwarts, you know, hidden from many, but full of wonders and friendship and adventure, and we'll fight over the power of evil through the power of self-sacrificing love that we'll learn is the ultimate magic in the universe, and through that we will conquer the evil one and evil itself. Which is not bad. You know, that's okay, right? That's not terribly wrong. But Jesus, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? And he walks into your kitchen and opens the pantry and takes a look around. Just the boring... Everyday stuff, which in itself communicates something about what Jesus is trying to say. The kingdom of God, his majestic kingdom, his Daniel 7 coming out of heaven on a horse, like the Son of Man shining on the cloud, not on a horse, on a cloud. Something about that kingdom for us. I read a wonderful book a few years back by Matt Redmond. Um, it's called God of the Mundane. It's a little bit lengthy, um, but I want to read it to you. He talks about his own journey of sort of over-spiritualizing the world as a pastor, or I would maybe say under-spiritualizing the world, but you'll, you'll see what he means here. Plumbers have trouble understanding why I don't worry much about water pressure, he writes. He's a minister at the time. Veterinarians think I should care about animals more. Potato farmers think I should eat more potatoes, and lawyers think I should understand the law better. And pastors think everyone else is not as passionate enough about the Bible and their faith as they are. I know this because I am a pastor, and I have been one for many years. My life revolves around studying the Bible, being at the church's meeting place, talking about theology, connecting all the dots, planning church events and attending them and serving at them. It took me years to realize that this is my life as a pastor and not everyone else's life. The life of everyone else is very different. It is full of all those things we are tempted to label as mundane in the spiritual stratosphere. Sure, every Christian has to deal with these things to a degree, but they are not the rhythm of their day-in and day-out lives as they are for a pastor. Of course, plumbers should care about the Bible and theology and what is going on at their church, of course. And it is good for them to have desire to serve in their congregation. But a pastor does all these things because he is a pastor. It's his vocation. A plumber makes sure our pipes are working and our toilets are flushing. It is his vocation. It's his calling from God. But the problem is that sometimes we pastors tend to forget this. We forget that our calling is different from the calling of those we teach and counsel. Maybe I'm just preaching to pastors right now. And that's, I mean, I'm the only one in the room, but I hope you're getting something from this too. We push back, we push back against the effects of the fall through the ministry of the word, through counseling and preaching and studying and leading. But plumbers push back against the effects of the fall too, through fixing leaky pipes. Teachers do it through making sure children learn how to count and to read and to write. Bankers push against the fall with secure safes. And good loans to small businesses. Farmers with their combines and turn rows. Librarians with organized shelves full of wonder and adventure and beauty and book recommendations to their patrons. 
Baristas with coffee and muffins and smiles. Cooks pushed back with duck larange, chicken masamon, and pizza. Homemakers with clean floors and changed diapers and home-cooked meals and hugs. Artists pushed back the fall with songs and paintings and pictures and stories. And all of this is a pushing back of the fall itself, the effects of evil on our world. When we, who are subjects of the king, live out his rule and reign wherever we are, we push against the insurrection of sin with all of its corruption and its lies and its ugliness. Do you hear what he's saying? Think about it with this messaging that we hear about how the church is supposed to conquer the world and change the culture. Of course, we should have an impact on the world around us. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But if Jesus isn't making a difference in my kitchen and in my dining room, why on earth would I expect him to make a difference at Capitol Hill with me? If he matters in the big stuff, he matters in the small stuff. Those little insignificant moments, those small acts of faithfulness, those little acts of repentance... The small postures of dependence upon God, those small gestures of love that we make to our family, to our neighbors, to our friends, to the people around us. When we pause for a moment and say, this bread is delicious. What a glorious God we serve. Taste and see that the Lord is good, even if you're by yourself. The kingdom of God is right there with you. Of course we want to make a difference. I want to make a difference. You want to make a difference. And it's not that Matt's not saying, and I'm not saying, and I'm sure Jesus is not saying that nothing matters, but rather the opposite, that everything matters, that all of it matters. And part of the beauty of the kingdom of God is in its smallness, even in its privacy, its secrecy at times, in its ordinary monotony. Part of what Jesus is saying is that in a manner of speaking, the kingdom of God can be small, very, very small. But it grows. It's small and it grows. It grows, second point. You think about yeast, it permeates the whole lump of dough, the whole three measures, which is an enormous amount of flour, and it gets into everything. And the seed, the mustard seed, grows into a tremendous plant. So a couple of things. Uh, In both cases, with the leaven and the seed, in order for it to grow, it has to be incorporated into something else. It has to be planted into the soil for the seed to grow. The yeast has to be mixed in with the flour in order to have its impact and to do what it's made to do in the kitchen. Um, The kingdom of God therefore, is not a matter of us cloistering ourselves and walling ourselves off as the church and saying secret and safe. Like Gandalf told Frodo to keep the ring, keep it secret, keep it safe. You ever feel that way about your faith? I'm going to stick with, stick with my Christian friends. We'll talk about Jesus with them. When I go to work, keep it secret, keep it safe. But rather, it's not about leaving this world, but rather it is about the followers of Jesus entering into the world 
that belongs to him, to permeate it, to be thoroughly engaged in it and with it, to grow in the midst of this world. Um, A few years back, we created a logo for RUF at William & Mary, and basically we had these just giant block letters, but the, the block letter U there was a little, it was basically based on this parable. There was a little plant growing out of a pot of soil, which was the U. And the roots were white space blocking out, and then the plant grew up out of the top of the U. You can picture that in your head. I didn't bring the logo to put on your screen. The part of the point we were trying to communicate amongst ourselves in that was this we're not here to be an enclave and a safe spot for Christians to hide while they're in college and keep their faith alive. Though, Keeping your faith in college is a great thing that I recommend uh, and encourage all of the incoming Christian students to do, but rather it was a place that we are going to grow in the midst of this campus. This university is the environment in which the kingdom of God can bear fruit. We're here to be part of this campus and a blessing to it and grow in the midst of it for the benefit of the campus. Um, in the same way, leaven, yeast... Uh, it makes the flour better. Sometimes we eat unleavened bread, perhaps a communion, for example. But usually, right, that's not what we order <laughs> when we go out. It's not what we uh, make videos about how to make really well on our TikTok channels. Um, I remember listening to, uh, you've ever seen America's Test Kitchen, the TV show on PBS? And they were sort of breaking down, like, why yeast is great, you know, and what happens. And I wish I had taken notes. But they were describing this whole chemical process that happens with the sugars and the proteins that are in the flour and the other ingredients and how there's this chemical interaction between the yeast and the other elements of the bread. And that what the yeast does is it makes the bread flaky and tasty and delicious. And the things that make us crave bread when we're on our keto diets and we just want a piece of bread, right? If you are gluten-free, I'm so sorry for the sermon. It's the material. It's the material. We have gluten-free uh, bread there in the blue bowl. We'll get to that in a minute. But the yeast, basically what they were saying on this uh, America's Test Kitchen is, like, the yeast is what makes it amazing. Without it, it's just bland flour. The mustard seed, the small seed grows... It grows slowly, right? Imperceptibly. Let me, let me ask you this. Let me think about the kingdom of God in, in a micro, more personal level in your own life. Have you ever said this to a friend or to yourself or to the Lord? Why am I not growing? Or you, or you just look and you say, I'm not, I'm not growing. Why? I don't. Why haven't I grown? I've I've had so many people say that to me through the years, like students, friends. I've said it. The fastest growing plant that I know of that I've had personal experience with in my life is kudzu. Um, I'm from the South, and um, we were constantly fighting it back behind our house. And it, it can grow up to 18 inches a day. That's wicked fast, right? If I had sat in my backyard and tried to watch it grow, do you think I would have noticed? Even at 18 inches a day, have you ever watched a plant grow? No. 
or you notice it with your own children, right? Like you, the kids, and you, they're they're growing, and you notice, but like when cousins come from out of town or grandparents come to visit, and they haven't seen the kids in six weeks or a year or or six months, what does what does everyone immediately say? Look at how big they are! <laughs> Look how much they've grown. When did you get so big? It's imperceptible, it's small, it's incremental, but it's in those little things. And I would assure you, if you are in Christ, you are growing. Not as fast as you and I want to, or not. But you are growing. Life is springing out, and this mustard seed goes below the surface. And imperceptibly, it grows, and eventually, suddenly, Jesus says, it's the biggest tree in the garden. Not only that, but he says this. I'm so glad we read that Ezekiel passage. But the birds of the air will make their nest in its branches. The birds, if you remember from another parable that Jesus tells about seed, parable of the sower, what does the bird do? It eats the seed. And in that parable, the bird represents Satan himself snatching away the word so that it can't grow. But here, when the seed actually gets in the soil... And then he says, the birds of the air, plural. In the Old Testament, specifically in Ezekiel chapter 17, the birds of the air are representatives of the nations of the world. Who in some instances, those birds are angry birds, (laughs) predatory birds that want to come and kill. But here, those birds, these nations, these foreign entities apart from Israel are the ones who were enemies of God. And now in Ezekiel 17 and in this parable, They come and they make their home in God's kingdom. It becomes a refuge for weary souls. Think about this in terms of this application of the kingdom as it grows. Who is a person that you know and hopefully love who right now might be considered an enemy of the seed of God's word, but might come to the point where they would make their nest in his branches? Think about Paul in the scripture. Think about your friends, family members, one who would destroy it, but in the future might have shelter from the storm in the branches of the kingdom of God and make their nest among us. That's what the kingdom of God is like. I think about the ministry that we have at William & Mary. Um, you know how it started? I was having lunch with a friend on Friday before I went to the airport. I was in Denver for RUF staff training. And he just finished up his first year in Western Washington, and he's been going through the, the early growing pains of getting a ministry started and trying to do some of the legwork to get through the front door. And he was like, you know, how did you get recognized at William & Mary as a student organization. I've been there 17 years, but it was two years old when I got there. I said, you know, I didn't have to do any of that stuff, but there was a student, I remember she had graduated before I got there, but her name was Amanda. Uh, Her last name's Amanda Brack now. She's married. From this church. Who was like, oh, I'll do all that. She was a student at William Mary to get RUF started. Like, logistically. 
She did the small, mundane, tedious paperwork of going to the office and filling out the form and getting students to sign on and all this and all that so that RUF could come to the College of William & Mary, where I've had the privilege of serving for 17 years. And y'all just prayed for Preston and Sarah Clarkson. They were in RUF, I think, was that our second year that they came? They had transferred in. And I can take zero credit for them ending up in the Middle East. Preston was like learning Arabic from day one and had a, he had a vision for his life. He was going to be the next Hudson Taylor um, back when he was 19. But think about that. Like, I was just struck by that but having lunch the other day and hearing you pray for, for Preston and Sarah this morning. I think of Hannah Dahl over the last four years, who's had this extraordinary impact on our campus and how, you know, in the lobby we were talking about just the difficulty of the COVID years and how the ministry survived and what changed. And she came in before that and then was a tremendous leader among our students and is now going on and just graduated. But I point these things out to see the impact that's being had in my life and in the ministry at William & Mary with these little touch points with just you and your church today and how all of it is this accumulation of tiny little things. Of relationships, of individuals, of faithfulness, and all the things that Matt Redmond was talking about. And think about those just applied outward and outward and outward acts of faithfulness at work and changing diapers and kissing boo-boos and loving each other and forgiving each other when we hurt each other and repenting when we've done the harm and the daily little bitty sacrifices that those are. And what's beautiful as well about this passage, about these parables, is that Jesus himself is the very embodiment of exactly what he is talking about. The incarnation, he becomes small. He was divine, and he becomes man. And like the yeast, he doesn't just stay separate and come and save the flower, but he actually incorporates himself into our actual material world. He becomes the God-man. He becomes a human being to become one of us. And like the seed, as he says in another parable, unless the seed should fall to the ground and what? Die. In order for that mustard plant to grow, the seed has to enter the soil and die and then sprout up. And Jesus himself does this. For us, he gives his life for us so that the church would sprout up and grow. And 2,000 years later, over 2 billion people in the world would say, that is the tree where I make my nest. And we on the other side of the planet right now in a foreign tongue are talking about it and singing praise to God and confessing our sins together. We all want to change the world because we know that the world needs to be changed. But the good news is that it is not up to us to change the world, but that Jesus has changed the world and is continuing to change the world through us. And it is going to look and feel at times incredibly boring for individuals like you and me. If our aspiration is to be praised, if our aspiration is to be flashy, if our aspiration is to be glorious, Think about this. If you want to be a rock star in ministry or a rock star out in the world, a rock star for God, think about this. A naked, crucified Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago is our fastball. 
We're never going to be cool. We're never going to be great. We're never going to be strong. Crucifixion is the way. Sacrifice is the way. Our Savior is the way. And yet, it brings so much life and so much transformation and so much change as we graft ourselves into his kingdom, as we allow him to work his leaven into our hearts, as the sacrifice of a dying plant happens again and again in our own lives, as we reach out, as we love one another, we see bit by bit the kingdom of God work its way into our world and bring transformation through the form of crucifixion and resurrection. And the flavor breaks out and life breaks in. And so comes the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are kind, that you are humble, that you are gentle with us. And that you are working your kingdom into us and through us and into this world. And we pray, Lord, would you continue to do it. Continue to draw us to yourself. Let us follow you in your ways. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Please stand together and we'll sing our last hymn.